Father, we thank you again for your word, for the richness, the depth, and uh, the opportunity, Lord, to come and study it together. I pray we would be impacted by your word and we would be changed by your word, that, that we would grow in our knowledge of you and, and in that, Lord, we would be filled with all the fullness of, of you. May you do your work and have your way amongst us today, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, so Colossians 2. We last week got as far as verse 10. We'll pull back a little bit and, uh, and give ourselves some context and press on through to verse 15 today. Uh, which means that next week we'll start to deal with the specifics of the heresy uh, heresies that were affecting the church and uh, Colossae. So, in verse 8, um, having uh, built up to this point, in verse 8, he warns the church that no one would take them captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to the human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So the warning is that we don't want to have a situation where false teaching, which originates in a twofold sense, it originates from human tradition, but behind the scenes, it is essentially demonic in its origin. Any teaching that is false is, is, uh, finds its origin in Satan. God is the father of, of truth and not of lies. And so that false teaching has the potential to hold us captive, to hinder us, to prevent us from being able to to live and to serve and to worship as we should. And he says, be careful not to let that happen through any way of thinking, uh, this, 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 this deceit that is ultimately empty. And it is, comes, as I said, from human tradition. It comes from uh, the demonic origin, and it doesn't come, conversely, from Christ. Now, that is then the part, the part for Paul to talk then about our relationship with Christ. And that was verse 9 last time. So we'll recap 9 and 10, and then we'll keep going with the flow of it through from 11. But just so that we, we understand, we've already seen a few weeks back that back in chapter 1, um, there was all of this statement that we spent two weeks over of who Christ is. We remember we had the three pronouns. We had the him, this is who Christ is, you, saints of Colossae, and I, Paul. But in the him section, Christ, we, we saw the glory and the majesty of Christ. Now in verses 9 through 15, we're looking at this glorious Christ again, but we're looking at how our relationship with him affects us. So it's not just that there is this awesome Christ out there, but as we saw last time, that awesome Christ is within us. And so he said, verse 9, for in him, as in Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So everything that makes the Father God is also in Christ. Christ is no less God than the Father is God. But at a point in human history, the divine eternal Son who coexisted with the Father from eternity past, at a point in history, he became flesh. And so the fullness of Christ's deity existed in bodily form. He became a human being. That was verse 9. 
then verse 10 says that the fullness of God that has always been in Christ, that was still in Christ when he became human flesh, that that fullness of God we have been filled with because we have been filled with Christ. So we've been filled in him, by him. Christ has filled us. Christ is in us. And he who is fully God is in us. He has completed us. He's filled us. All these terms of completion, of sufficiency, of nothing lacking. And so what he's saying is, and we're kind of moving ahead a bit to next week, you don't need this false teaching that says you need additional rules. You don't need additional rules. You don't need additional revelation. You don't need additional visions. You don't need additional anything because you've been filled in Christ. By receiving Christ, because he is complete, you've been completed through having him. And so there's nothing that you're lacking. Now, we'll talk more about this as we go on, but this to me is the central difference between biblical Christianity and so much false teaching that gets passed around churches today. And when I want to know sometimes whether somebody is sound, where they are with their teaching, one of the first questions that I ask and you can ask them is, as a Christian, am I complete? Aside from my future redemption, when I receive a new body, and there's no more sin, and I meet Christ face to face, and I am like him in the sense of being without sin. I can stand in his presence. (gasps) Apart from that complete redemption that will happen after death, is there any way that I am incomplete? Do I need to go and have some experience? Is there some blessing that I'm missing out on? And essentially, if somebody is teaching that we are somehow lacking then they have opened the floodgates for false teaching. Because the second that you say that you you as a Christian are incomplete, that you're missing out, that you need this, there's some blessing you don't have, then the opportunity arises for, for then, well, what is it that you need? You need this, you need this, you need this, you need this, and suddenly there's a whole mass of things that can come in all of which ultimately are additional to Christ, are of human tradition, and are demonic. We don't need anything else. Christ has filled us. And that's really what he's going to go on to complete in the rest of this section. Just to finish off the thought of verse 10 though, um, which is where we left it last time, that the one who has filled us, we've been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In other words, Christ is sovereign over all the demonic realm that would give us false teaching. It makes no more sense to have Christ and a little bit of extra teaching that's apart from Christ than it makes made for the Old Testament saints to worship Yahweh and then worship a little bit of Baal on the side. And we look at that Old Testament situation, we look at the Israelites, and there they were saying, oh God, we worship you, oh, but it's harvest time, so we'll go and make a few sacrifices to Baal as well, so we get a good harvest. And we're there kind of banging our heads against the wall, thinking, you're crazy, what are you, what are you playing at, guys, you know? You worship God, you don't worship anyone else. 
And the same Christians who say that will then have all of these different rules that aren't in the Bible, or they'll have all of these different revelations that aren't in the Bible, and they won't recognize that they're doing exactly the same thing. Either Christ is sufficient, or he's not. So verse 11, with all that context in mind, let's press on and look at the remainder of this relationship that we have, this life that we have in Christ. He says, in him, verse 11, also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, as soon as we start talking about circumcision, I think a lot of people kind of either A, get confused, or B, switch off, or a little bit of both. But what's important here is this. He's using circumcision, but he's not talking clearly about literal circumcision. And what he's doing is he's referencing a non-physical circumcision. Now, we need to understand that this concept is nothing new. We looked a little bit at this in some of our previous studies in the evenings, but I don't think we have so much in the mornings. So I want us to turn and get the, the context of this. Let's turn to Deuteronomy, because of course we know how you all love Deuteronomy. You're probably there earlier this morning or something. Deuteronomy chapter 30. <clears throat> in Deuteronomy 30, we have the, um, the re-giving of the covenant, the summing up of the covenant. And he says uh, about what will happen. Um, let me just read quickly from the beginning of the chapter. And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the, lo the Lord your God has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you to the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. Okay? So, let's just get our context. Deuteronomy is a, it's essentially a marriage covenant between God and Israel. It's a restating of the Mosaic covenant. And he's saying, when all these things come upon you, the blessings and the curse, which is the blessings and curse of the Mosaic covenant, he's saying, well, that's what's happened. I will uh, call to mind all that's happened, and you'll return to the Lord your God, you and your children, you'll obey his voice, heart and soul, and God will bring you back to the land. Now, a lot of people think of this as being separate from Mosaic covenant, because what he's saying is, is when you all return, he will bring you back into the land. And there is a, uh, a sense in which you will come back, you'll be in the land, and God will uh, be the one whom you worship. And in a sense, that really hasn't been fulfilled. And he says that you'll be prosperous and more numerous than your fathers. And then look what he says will happen, verse 6. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you, and you shall again obey uh, the voice of the Lord and keep his commandments that I command you today. 
The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in the work of your hand and the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your cattle and the fruit of your ground. So we're coming back to this time of prosperity. And verse 10, when you obey the voice of your God to keep his commandments and statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. It's a tricky passage in so much as he's talking about them turning to God and keeping the, the covenant, keeping the laws that have been given. But in the midst of it, in that middle section, there seems to be this indication of a future time when they return to God and keep his laws, and he, in response to them turning back to him, is going to circumcise their heart. Now, as we continue to go through the Old Testament, turn now to Jeremiah 31, Go to Jeremiah 31, we see a very similar thing. Because in Deuteronomy 36, uh, 30 and verse 6, he talks about the, the um, he talks about the circumcision of the heart. And in, in talking about that, he was saying, let me just recap one more time while you're finding Jeremiah that the result of this circumcision of the heart, well, they will love the Lord God with all their heart and with all their soul, and they will live, there will be a life. Okay? Now, in Jeremiah 31, verse 31, we have the giving of the new covenant. And it's very clear here that this is not the covenant with Moses, it's the old covenant's gone, be a, there will be a new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. So he's going to make it with the Jews. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So there's that marriage covenant, that covenant of Moses, which they broke. And it's distinctly not that covenant. There's a new covenant he's going to make. But this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their heart, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so there is this, there is this sense in which they will, again, they will keep the law, they will love God, they will know God, and the law will be written on their hearts. And this is very similar to this circumcision of the heart. The circumcision of the flesh was Israel being distinguished by something outward and physical. A circumcision of the heart is then being distinguished by something inward. And while that distinguishing is what Deuteronomy focused on, in Jeremiah, I noticed that this, this is still a future thing, that it's going to be distinct from the Old Covenant, and that it is going to um, be something that happens in the future. It is something that is going to have the law written on their heart. They will obey God's law because they know it. There's something in their hearts that's different. There's, in fact, a new heart. And then we go to Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36 is our final passage. Of the Old Testament that we're going to do here. <coughs> in verse 22, he says, I will... 
therefore, says the, to, I say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord your God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. Gosh, it's, I, I want, I'm really keen to teach Ezekiel. I've got an Ezekiel itch right now. Um, but this is a great passage in that he's saying, look, you guys have messed up. You were supposed to keep the law. You didn't keep the law. You've embarrassed me and you've shamed me and you've shamed yourselves. And I'm going to put it right, not because of you, because you've messed up, but I'm going to put it right for my name's sake. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which is profaned among the nations and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am God, uh, that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when th through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. This is important. This is the very nature of God. That God makes a covenant with Israel, Israel fails terribly, and God says, I'm going to be faithful to you anyway, because it will show my character, even while you are sinning against me. That's the nature of God. That's the nature of God's covenant-keeping love. We, we have a covenant with God and God break the covenant, but God never does. He is faithful even when we're faithless. That's his nature. And he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your land. Exactly what he said in, uh, in Deuteronomy. The restoration to the land. It was there in, his, in Jeremiah as well, but we didn't continue to that point. But I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. So there is this forgiveness of sins. Jeremiah spoke of the forgiveness of sins. And here Ezekiel's talking about it, and then he says in 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the sto heart of stone from your flesh, um, and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules, and you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. Now, let's put all of this together. Deuteronomy, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. <coughs> God is saying, look, here's the rules that you're supposed to keep, but you're not going to keep them. You're in rebellion. But when you turn back to me, I will draw you to myself and I will circumcise your heart, which is the same as giving you a new heart, which is going to cause you to live as you should. And this new heart is the same as receiving the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel. So whether you call it circumcision of the heart, whether you call it getting a new heart, or whether you call it getting the Holy Spirit, it's the same thing. And it is the new covenant that God promised to Israel, which is superior to the old covenant, because it can be kept. Because it comes with the Holy Spirit, a new heart, and the opportunity to live according to the laws that have been given. Empowerment. Now, all of this should ring true with any of you who were here for the book of Ephesians. Because he talks about the giving of the Holy Spirit and the empowerment that comes with that. So when Paul, you can turn back to Colossians now, when Paul in Colossians is talking about a circumcision that is not of the flesh, he's saying, look, 
There was this circumcision that made the covenant people covenant people. A circumcision of the flesh. But you guys have a different circumcision. You have a circumcision that makes you covenant people. He's using terminology that links them with the new covenant. But the new covenant is distinguished from the old in a few ways. One is forgiveness of sin, which he's going to mention in the next couple of verses. But the one that he's dealing with initially here is that the new covenant comes with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Christ in us through the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's saying. You've got the fullness of Christ and we've been filled in him because we've been circumcised. We've had the old nature put aside, putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, verse 12 now, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God. <coughs> so the baptism here, <coughs> I think in context, is a reference to the baptism of the Spirit. Now a lot of weird stuff said about baptism of the Spirit, but as I'm making very clear, and as the text makes very clear in the broader context here, there's no experience that Christians need to go and have. Baptism is an initiation. That's what the concept of it is. If you got baptized when you believed, you don't get baptized again every week or every month or even every year. A baptism is a one-off thing. And when you believed in Christ, you received the Holy Spirit, and that was your initiation. You received the baptism of the Spirit. And here he's saying, when you're baptized, you were baptized with Christ. Now, I hope you can see the linking there, okay? What he's saying is, is this circumcision that you've received, that's the new covenant, you have by being buried with him in baptism. So as Christ died, so we die because our old nature is dealt with through the union with Christ that comes in the baptism of the Spirit. And then also we're raised, so we die with Christ, that's our old nature, we died to our old nature, and we're now raised with Christ in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. That's Ephesians 1 right there. The power within us by the Holy Spirit is the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. So it's a kind of, at first glance, a little bit of a complicated passage. But what he's saying, which I think would have been understood by those Jews of that era, is that you are not old covenant people. You're not distinguished by circumcision of the flesh. You are new covenant people. And you're distinguished by the new heart that you have, the power that you have over your old nature, the removal of the old ways by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think we understand that anyway. But let's see the importance of that in context and the flow of Paul's argument. What he's saying is, old covenant people had to do things externally to show they were God's people. So they had circumcision. 
they had to have their prayer shawls and they had to do these outward things. They had the feasts and they had the festivals and they had all of these sort of religious acts that they had to do. And that was their expression of their covenant with God. We're now under a new covenant that is very different. And he brings to our attention circumcision because it shows the dramatic difference between old and new. Old covenant, they were essentially marked, branded by their circumcision. A physical, external thing. But the circumcision of the new covenant is not a removal of flesh. It's a removal of our old nature that we were bound to that we couldn't get away from. Oh, we, we do all these things to say, hey, look, I'm religious, look, I'm holy. And you know the people who did them best? They were the Pharisees. The Pharisees, the Pharisees tithed their mint and their herbs. Can you imagine that? Have you ever been to a supermarket and bought any of those little bunches of herbs that they sell? We, and the most common one here is, is cilantro, isn't it? You get a little bunch of cilantro. Can you imagine counting out the cilantro so that you make sure that you're giving exactly 10% and then go and take that to the priest? That's how strictly they kept the law. And Jesus looked at them and said, you're breakers of the law because you've missed the whole point. There they were, externally keeping it, and yet completely distant from God. So God says, well, here's a new covenant. Here is a superior covenant that doesn't work on the external keeping of laws, but works on the internal transformation of people so that we follow Christ and we don't have to say, hey, look, I'm Jesus's because I'm circumcised or I'm wearing a Jesus t-shirt or, you know, or, or some external showing of our faith. But the, the, our faith is seen because the internal transformation and the internal empowerment from the Holy Spirit comes out through us naturally. And in that context, the idea that we are made more holy by saying, don't do this, don't touch that, don't eat this, keep this festival, don't wear this, wear that, and all these external rules, we're shifting from new covenant back to old. We're going from something better to something worse. We're going from something that's alive to something that's dead. It makes no sense. I'm on a mission, folks. I'm on a mission to expose and remove old covenant Christianity because it's an oxymoron. There's no such thing as old covenant Christianity. We as Christians are come to Christ, whether we were Jews or Gentiles, whether we were near or far off, we've come the same way by faith in Christ. We've come and received his Holy Spirit who empowers us and transforms us. And we don't want to go back to this mentality that we're going to come into the presence of God. That we're going to ask God to send his Spirit in these old covenant ways because we rejoice in the fact that we have his Spirit in all his power. And we're going to live from that place where we allow him to transform us internally rather than slapping on rules externally. If you like the external slapping on of religion and of, of holiness, quote unquote, then go join the Mormon church. That's where they do that kind of thing. Go be a JW. 
But that is not Christianity. Christianity is a, is a faith under the new covenant where the believer is empowered and is given a new heart and is able to keep God's laws because God has put the desire to keep his laws within us. And the degree to which we sin is the degree to which we continue to live according to our old nature, whose power has been removed, has been circumcised, cut off, but yet we continue to live in it as if it were our only option. That's, that's the deal. That's what he's talking about. So you can see, I hope contextually, the whole point of this argument is Paul saying, look, you're new covenant Christians. Your, your, your distinguishing factor is the internal transformation you have, therefore trying to make yourself more holy by external slapping on, whether it's rules or visions or whatever else, is, is crazy because you have everything that you need. You've just got to walk in it. That's what Paul said to the Ephesians again and again. He told them in first three chapters everything that God had done for them. And so he says in chapters four and five and six again and again, walk in it, walk in it, walk in it, walk in it. Nothing else to be received, just walk in it. And so, having been buried and died to our old nature, having been raised in this, in this empowerment that comes under the new covenant, he then says, so, and you, verse 13, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. So you were sinners and you, you weren't even keeping the law. He says, God has made us alive together with him. So now, and this is really crystal clear, he says, you were uncircumcised in the flesh. So you weren't keeping the law. You weren't even keeping the old covenant. There's a whole bunch of Gentiles here who've been saved. You weren't keeping the old covenant, but you've been made alive in Christ. Notice that. You didn't go from not keeping the old covenant to keeping the old covenant to being made alive. You simply weren't keeping the old covenant and you were made alive. You've bypassed the old covenant. It doesn't exist anymore. It's no longer in effect. We're not under the old covenant. There is now this new covenant. God is still the same faithful covenant-keeping God. He will be faithful even when we're faithless. But the new covenant is a very different thing. And notice what we see in the end of verse 13. The making us alive together with him, together united with Christ, having forgiven us our trespasses. That's what Jeremiah promised. That's what Ezekiel promised, that the new covenant would come with the forgiving of sins. That's how it's possible. The old covenant, in part, was the external keeping of sacrificial laws that would make a person right with God. The new covenant, God forgives our sins through the one sacrifice of Christ, that makes us right with God so that he can give us a new heart so that we can keep his laws. Do you see the completely different order of that? Not we keep his laws 
so that we can be made right with him. Rather, he makes us right with him with the one sacrifice so that we can keep his laws. The forgiveness of sins is necessary so that we can have this unity with him, this giving of the Spirit, so that we can be able to keep his laws. So he has forgiven our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This is an interesting phrase, and I could get into the debate over the precise details, but let's look at the main points here. Whatever this specifically means, and it would have been understood in a sense of an, an IOU, if you like. But there is a record of debt that we have because of our sin. Now that debt is a debt with God. And the point I think being made is simply this. That God, being a holy God, has to punish our sins. He has to. Because God is a holy God. And a holy covenant-keeping God cannot simply brush aside mere details like sin. He's got to deal with it. And God can't ignore our sin. He can't tolerate our sin. Sin has to be punished. And so, what he does is he takes the record of debt that stands against us with legal demands. There are ramifications of this debt. We must be punished. And he takes it and he cancels it out. And this he sets aside, nailing it to the cross. In other words, when Jesus died on the cross, as he and his flesh was nailed, as his body was nailed to that cross, in that sacrifice, our sins were nailed there with him. In other words, he was being punished for our sins. God does not let Christians off. He doesn't brush aside our sin. He doesn't just say, oh, don't worry about it. It's one of the greatest misconceptions among many Christians. God is seriously concerned about our sin. So bothered is he about our sin that he must punish it with death. But so great is his love that he sent his son to die and be punished for our sins in our place. And guys, if so much of the theology that I teach you week in, week out goes over your head a little bit, don't worry, it'll come eventually. But this is the most important thing of all. Christ died as a punishment for sin our sin. That is the absolute center of our faith. He died in our place for our sin. And in dying, all of the debt that we had to God, all the punishment that was due to us, was poured out, <coughs> pardon me, was poured out on Christ. 
was poured out on him so that we could stand forgiven, so that he could come and be with us by indwelling us with his Holy Spirit to overcome the flesh and to take us away from the old system, the old rules and regulations. And in doing so, look at this in verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Now, this passage is a great standalone passage. You know, this is so true, that in Jesus conquering sin, dealing with our sin, being punished for our sins so that we could stand forgiven and righteous before God, in doing that, he thwarted the enemy. I mean, it's a great truth. The power that the enemy had over us has been removed. And it's a power in two ways. Because disarming is an easy phrase to skim over. But disarming is quite a strong phrase. You know, if, if you came to church, I mean, we're not in Texas here, I understand. But if someone came to church with a firearm, and I said, not in church, leave it at the door then you would be now be disarmed. You had something that could cause harm. You had a weapon and it's now you've been disarmed. That's essentially what's being spoken of here. That the, the demonic realm was disarmed by Christ, firstly, because they can no longer separate us from God. Their plan to deceive us and to, and to keep us away from Christ has failed. We are now in Christ and Christ is in us. We have this unity with Christ by the giving of the Holy Spirit and he is going to be faithful to that new covenant. He will keep it and we will never be separate from him. Isn't that good? And, and by the way, just as an aside, because I know this teaching goes around in Christian circles, this is why it's completely non-negotiable that Christians, true saved Christians, can never lose their salvation. Because the whole point of covenant is that when we are faithless, he is proven to be faithful. When we mess up, it doesn't matter how much we mess up, it doesn't matter how long we mess up for, it doesn't matter to what extent we mess up, he will be faithful to his promises to us. That's the new covenant. And so, being saved and being united disarms the enemy in that regard. But also, because it's the new covenant, and there's the indwelling spirit who empowers us, because we have a new nature, and we have put aside the flesh. Because of that, the enemy is now disarmed from keeping us from following Christ. Do you understand that? This is Romans 8.1. There is therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus. And most Christians misunderstand that verse to think that it means justification, that we're not condemned because we've had our sins forgiven. That's true, but that's not what that verse is saying. It's saying there's now no condemnation because the giving of the Holy Spirit means that we don't have to live a life where we're held captive to false teaching to wrong ideas, and to bad living. We're no longer condemned to live that life. We're no longer condemned, like under the old covenant, to have these laws and rules and regulations, but no ability to keep them. Destined to failure. Under the new covenant, we're empowered so that we can keep the laws and the rules and the covenant. That 
ability of the enemy has been disarmed. Now, as I said, that's a great standalone truth. That's just wonderful. That's, like I say, Romans 8.1 right there. But in the context of, of Colossians 2, what Paul is saying, and look at the use of rulers and authorities here. He, he, he deals with rulers and authorities in this passage three times. It's a sandwich at the beginning and at the end. You know I like my sandwiches, at least theologically speaking. And then it's there in the middle as well. <clears throat> at the beginning, he says, verse 8, don't let anyone take you captive by philosophy or empty deceit, which is sourced from elemental spirits of the world. That's our rulers and our authorities and our demonic realm. Okay? They can keep you captive. At the end, he says, these rulers and authorities have been disarmed by Christ, who's put them to open shame by triumphing over, triumphing over them on the cross. And there in the middle of the passages we saw, there is Christ in verse uh, 10, oh, pardon me, verse 10, who is the head. He is sovereign over all rule and all authority. So because Christ is sovereign over the demonic realm, and because we're united with Christ through the giving of the Holy Spirit under the new covenant, the, the power of the demonic realm has been disarmed so that we don't need to be taken captive by that, their false teaching. Can you see how that whole argument goes together? It's really important that you do. He is saying, look, there's false teacher coming in most will say false teachers, but there's a good argument that was only one there. But somebody's kind of come in with false teaching. And this false teaching is going to take you captive. It's going to give weaponry, as it were, to the enemy, to the demonic realm. To hinder you. But you have a new covenant relationship. You're not, you're not like under the old covenant where, where, where you didn't have empowerment. Your circumcision is not a fleshly one, it's one of the heart. The transformation that you have, have is an inward one because you have Christ in you by his spirit and Christ is the fullness of God. He, he's the head of every rule and every power and every authority and he dwells in you by his spirit. And so by receiving his spirit, by receiving Christ... You were baptized in his death and you've died to your old way of living and the old system and you've been raised with this power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead so that these rulers and this demonic realm has no authority over you. And if you understand, if you can just understand who you are in Christ, then the idea of somebody coming along and saying... Hey, I got a revelation from an angel the other day. I had a dream and I was told this. Just becomes nonsense to you. I've got the fullness of God in Christ dwelling in me. I don't need some additional thing. I don't need to go and, 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 and bow before some angel and receive revelation. And equally, I don't need to keep a whole bunch of rules and regulations that are old covenant in nature. I'm not going to go and do things aesthetically that will make me look like I'm more holy. Because my holiness isn't shown 
outwardly, like the Pharisees and like under the old covenant system, my, my, my holiness is shown through the inner transformation of me. Now, I said this last time, so I'm just going to remind you again. When we come through Colossians 2, if we do it justice, we're going to sound very antinomian. And that's an expression that means against the law. Ah, you can do whatever you like. Then when we get to chapter 3, we're going to see how this inner transformation affects us in the realm of holiness and how in fact we can't do whatever we like and in fact there's a whole way of life that we're away from. But you know, in the same way that you, if you preach the gospel, one of the, when you preach grace, you're saying to someone, look, come to Christ and he'll forgive you all of your sins. You haven't got to be punished for any of them. That every sin you commit, past, present and future, will be forgiven by Christ on the cross. And to somebody, if you preach the gospel, they can complain and say, that sounds like people can just get away with whatever they like. And unless you preach the grace of the gospel faithfully, sorry, let me rephrase that. If you preach the grace of the gospel faithfully, then yes, it will appear that way. Because that's how grace appears. But when you really understand it, then you understand there is a transformation that comes and it's not what it first appears. But it has to have that impression initially, otherwise it's not grace. In the same way, when we deal with the fact that we are in Christ, and that we aren't going to keep holiness externally, that we aren't going to be old covenant Christians, then initially it can look antinomian. Bear with me in chapter 2. Chapter 3 will not allow that impression even in the slightest. But we have got to preach hard the removal of additional revelation, whether it comes in the form of visions and angels and the super spiritual mumbo jumbo, or whether it comes in the more traditional format of legalism and additional rules. Either way, these additions are saying that Christ is insufficient. And what Paul has shown us in this section that we've completed today is he's shown us that we are new covenant believers in Christ. We are united with him in his death and resurrection. We're empowered by his spirit. And look at the start of verse 16 now. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. There are those who will say, well, you're not a proper Christian because you don't do this, or you don't do that, or you look at this, or you don't look at that. Now, we're going to see again, we're going to see in chapter 3, there is a whole bunch of life that is now behind us because we're Christians. We are talking here in the context of additional non-biblical rules and regulations, non-biblical revelations. And we're going to deal with all of this in detail next week. But I wanted to end this week with the therefore. It is because of our association with Christ. It is because we are complete in Christ. It is because we are empowered in Christ that we don't make ourselves holy by additional revelation or by additional rules. Christ is sufficient. Now that's all by way of build-up to the main juice of the book. 
which is the actual doctrine, the actual teaching that you mustn't be taken captive by. The teaching that because you're in Christ, you mustn't be deceived by. And I will get myself muddy and dirty next week. I will be frank, I will be bold, I will tread on toes, left, right and centre, because I do not want you to be taken captive. And so next time, we will come back and we will look at the very issues of false teaching that were coming into the church. But for now, we simply recall, we are in Christ, Christ is in us, we died to sin, we've been risen in the holiness of new life, and this stuff is not necessary for us. We have all that we need in Christ. Let's pray. <coughs> Father, we thank you for our salvation. Father, sometimes we just take it for granted. We remember the forgiveness of sins and the promise of heaven, but we forget so much of the other stuff. That you've taken away the power of the enemy to rule us on a day-to-day -day basis because you, by your Holy Spirit, under the new covenant, have empowered us that we might be free from sin. Father, help us to walk in the power that you've given, in the life that you've given, in the unity with Christ that you've given. Father, help us not to walk in our old ways and in our flesh. May we be captivated by you. May we be captivated by your Son. May we love him above everything else on this planet. May Christ be the thing that we desire, the thing that we love more than anything else. May he be our whole, our everything. Lord, you've given him to us. May we not get distracted by false religious things. And loving Christ and living for Christ and living in Christ, may your spirit change us. Lord, we know we're not going to be 100% holy overnight, but we ask that you would gradually change us day by day. Help us to love one another more, to love you more, and to walk by your Spirit, whom you gave to us. Lord, may you be glorified in this, we pray. Amen. <clears throat>